0: We've been working through this series for these past few weeks. We're up to chapter 4 of the book of James and uh, we're going to carry on uh, this afternoon. But before we do, let's pray together, shall we? Father, we recognise that right at this point in time, we're not talking, turning to just another book. We're not talking about uh, great human ideas. We're talking about the living word of God which continues to speak to every generation and every people group. And it will continue to speak long we might hear your word. That we might hear you and that you might speak to us. We might understand you and that we might understand the truths which have shaped your people throughout time. And we pray that we might know this, not through the voice of a man, but through the voice of the living God, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So James writes uh, a letter to a group of Christians not far off 2,000 years ago. Uh, And here we are, 21st century. It would seem on face value that we couldn't be further away, could we? If we look back in time and we kind of imagine ourselves back then the kind of life that people would have lived at that point in time is so remarkably different from the life that we live today we are in such a different place on the face of it and yet what we find out again and again as we turn to the bible is that the bible speaks into our generation into our day and brings truths which are incredibly powerful for us Somebody has said that the world is a zero-sum game. What that means is that there is a finite amount of resource. Uh, And basically, the resource that is available, it's a bit like cutting a cake. Cutting a cake or a a cake on a table is a zero-sum game. If I cut a piece of cake, for me, the size of the piece that I cut The size of the piece that I have means that you get less cake. That's a zero-sum game. It means that if I take all the cake, there's zero for you. We think of the world as a bit of a zero-sum game. In fact, we behave like that. We think that there is a certain amount of resource and we have to have it. We have to gain it, we have to gather it, we have to collect it. That famous artist, Damien Hirst, the one of the dead shark in formaldehyde, if any of you are into contemporary art, Damien Hirst said this about life. Collecting is the way the world works as a human being. Collecting is the way the world works as a human being. As you go through life, you just collect I always think collections are like a map of man's mind. That's interesting, isn't it? He's saying, you know what, we just, we collect, but we collect incessantly. In fact, let's be honest, our culture, possibly more than uh, a culture for many generations, possibly, arguably, throughout time, our culture, more than any other culture, defines itself by what we have what we have is who I am. That's what we think. So we, we define ourselves by our collection of possessions. We define ourselves by that collection of the scarce resource of relationships or the scarce resource of friendships. We treat this world like a finite resource. Turn the pages of Hello Magazine, and what it is, is it full of? Is it, It's full of people who have consumed who many people would then aspire to be like because they happen to have an Armani suit or whatever uh, lifestyle and five houses in various parts of the world and a private jet and all of that kind of thing. There are people to aspire to. And, and many people live their lives defining themselves by what we have. And you might think to yourself, do you know what I can honestly say? That's not, that's not where I am. I am very satisfied. I was, trying to, I was trying to work this through. What about those people in the Occupy protests that are going on around the, 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 the world at the moment? People who have said, you know what, I am not bothered about Possessions. Uh, I'm not bothered about whether I've got uh, a great house. Actually, I'm happy to live in a tent on the steps of St. Paul's. How does that fit in with this sense of possession? Think about this. The possession in that case isn't individual. The possession is gathered. In other words, I'm part of this group of people and we all, are happy not to have. But the one thing that we're really bothered about is all of those people that disproportionately have. So you might say, well, I'm quite comfortable with what I've got. Generally, that would mean that we fit into a group where we say, I'm part of a group that maybe doesn't have, but I'm really discouraged. I'm really uncomfortable. In fact, I'm angry with the The small number of people who have a massive amount. In fact, my mind says that the world should work on a more balanced basis. Isn't it interesting? That when we really start to think about it, we are either somebody who is driven by what we have personally, or we are driven by what we have collectively. We have a sense of what we have is who we are. Somebody has said this being therefore being depends on having and worth is derived by what we possess so if I don't have I am of less worth if I don't possess I am of less value I am not quite so much the person that I ought to be James says in this opening chapter, uh, this opening verses of chapter 4, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You desire, you desperately want. What causes the strife that is going on? amongst you. Now let's just stop and remind ourselves he is writing here to, a ch- to churches. He's saying look you are living and you are carrying on living driven by what you possess by, by what you've got and it causes quarrels and strife amongst you he even says it takes you as far as killing. Jesus said if you hate somebody you've already killed them. I think that's where James' mind is going. I don't think there was literal bloodshed in the church that he was writing to. I think he's saying that if your attitude is such that you are so angry with somebody that you want to think of them as nothing, in other words, you wish you weren't there, you might as well have killed them. That's where, you, that's where you're headed. The tragedy in the world that we live is that the idea of being killed for something is actually not so far off the mark. New Year's Day this year, somebody, young 19-year-old woman in London was shot for her mobile phone. Shot for her mobile phone. Thankfully, she survived and made a reasonable recovery. But shot for her mobile phone because of what we possess, because I need to look, I need to be, I need to identify myself with... A particular category of people or being or who I am. Politicians for generations now have promised us the leveling of society that those who have not can move up the stratas of society and can gain. And we just surround ourselves with this strife of gaining. Being depends on having worth and identity on possessions. Possessions. So he goes on to say in verse 3... ...when you ask you do not receive... ...because you ask with wrong motives... ...that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. (laughs) That's interesting. That's fascinating. You ask and you don't receive... ...because you ask for wrong motives. In other words, you want things because you want to keep up. You want it for all of those inner desires. You don't want it for the right motives... That kind of sounds, doesn't it, as if from God's perspective the world isn't a zero-sum game. That sounds as if God is saying if you asked with the right motive you would receive. If your desires and your wants and your needs in other words if you were so tuned in to what was right for you in relationship to what I know is right for you, if you were asking in a way which was consistent with what I see as your needs, you would receive. If you were prioritizing what you were asking for, you would receive. Jesus said that a good father doesn't give his child stones when they ask for bread. You don't do that. You know, I, I just, I can't imagine. It's such an incongruous picture, isn't it? It's a horrible picture. Your hungry son comes along and says, can I have some bread? And you give him stones. It doesn't work. You wouldn't, a- you wouldn't ask for a necessity and give a bad thing. And, she's, and James is saying, do you know what, if you were so in tune With what you really need from God, you would be asking maybe even for completely different things than you find yourself asking for. So we see here in verse 1 to 3, we see the reasons for our fighting. We see the reasons for the fighting that goes on in the world around the world globally. We see the reasons for the fighting that goes on in all of those ever decreasing circles, ultimately, to sadly, we see the reasons for the fighting that goes on within the gathering of the people of God within this church that James is writing to. And maybe, maybe he's writing and saying it's the reason for the fighting and quarreling that goes on within Christ Church Escape. What a tragedy! Because we are looking on with envy at others around us who seem to have more than us. And we are driven by by an anger and an angst and a disappointment. And therefore, what happens when we look on around and we see others with, whatever that might be, money, possessions, relationships, friendships, families, all of those things that we think we desperately need. And when we're filled with that perspective, it, it shifts the way we treat each other. It changes our attitudes towards each other. In other words, what's going on inside spills out into our relationships with each other. That's how it works, doesn't it? It's how it works. I mean, let's be honest. We can't even be happy with ourselves some days, can we? (laughs) We can't even get on with ourselves. You know, we, we have one of those days where we're so bent out of shape inside, that we're even angry with ourselves. So if we're bent out of shape when we look at those around us, then it's going to cause a ripple impact on our relationships with those around. The way we speak to each other, the way we respond, the way we look at each other, the way we seek to engage, the way we, the way we just don't bother speaking to somebody because Well, deep down inside, there's there's tension, there's anger. There is that sense in which we are angry. How tragic. The reasons for the fighting. It's so consistent with the whole of the message of the Bible. Jesus says the problem is not the outside, the problem is the inside. It's what's going on inside of us that's the issue. From within a man and a woman's heart comes envy and strife and murder and unfaithfulness. It's what's going on inside. Therefore, let's deal with the inside. So that's the reasons. The question now as we come to verse 4 through to 10 is God or the world? that's really important because this is not written generally to the whole of the world. Although you might be here this afternoon and you might know that you are not at this point in time a believer in Jesus Christ. You might know that you are here and that you are perhaps brought along with a friend. You might be interested. You might have, um, you might have just wanted to come along. But you know that you are not living a life which is committed to faith in Jesus Christ. This letter primarily is not written to you. It's really helpful for you because it answers the questions as to why there's all of the problems that we see. You you know, we have a tendency, don't we, to put all the blame outside, whereas this says the blame is on the inside. This is for those who are followers in Jesus Christ. And the challenge that comes from verse 4 to 10 is this. Is it God or is it the world? There's a, there's a faced up question, isn't it? That's right in your face. Is it God or is it the world? Chapter 4, doesn't, verse 4 doesn't pull any punches. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? You adulterous people. There is something still in our generation which is deeply, deeply disturbing and horrible about unfaithfulness. We still don't like it. For all that we live a life uh, in, in, in our society today which does not commit itself to relationship one person with another. We live a life that is not committed to that. We still know that, there are in, that, when that when a relationship is proved to be unfaithful, there is great pain. Isn't that interesting? No matter, no matter how we live, how, how much freedom we want to give ourselves, we know that adultery, unfaithfulness, is still unacceptable. Now what this verse uses is that powerful picture of a lack of faithfulness As a description of whether we are in relationship with God. Or whether we are in relationship with the world. Don't you know. That friendship with the world. Makes you an enemy of God. In other words. You've said that you are a follower of Jesus. You've said that. But you are living unfaithfully you are living faithful to this world not faithful to god that's powerful isn't it we say friendship with the world that sounds well actually our our understanding of the word friendship is not the understanding of friendship that the ancients had when the ancients talked about friendship it was the kind of it was the kind of Deep closeness that was was almost the same kind of commitment as marriage. It was that kind of deep commitment. It was a sharing of property. It was the, the sharing of spiritual resources. It was the sharing of emotion. It was a deep commitment. In other words, if I am a friend of you... I am deeply committed to you and you are deeply committed to me. In other words, friendship with the world means you are deeply committed to everything that you see around and you are not deeply committed to God. It carries on with the same idea of Abraham who was described as being a friend of God. In other words, for Abraham, he was deeply committed. Committed relationally, emotionally, spiritually to friendship with God and he had abandoned himself to his commitment to this world. Now do you see how that fits in with possessions? Do you see how that fits in? If we are deeply committed to relying on possessions in this world, if we are deeply committed to finding our hope, our security, our emotional, our spiritual, our physical well-being from the things in this world, the things which are temporary, we are being unfaithful because we are saying that can supply you everything that I need. This world can supply everything that I need. And God is saying, don't you know who I am? I can supply way more than this world can ever supply. And you are faithful to things that you can see that you know will break. You're faithful to things that you can see that you know will go. They'll rot away. They'll break. They'll die. And you're holding on to that. And I'm the God who lives forever, I'm the God who is there. I am the God who is faithful. I am the God who is consistent. And I'll take you through, he says in these verses, I'll take you through the whole of the sweep of the Bible and consistently, continually you will see that it is unfaithfulness to me and a commitment to this world which is the root problem of people. Right the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and the problem of Adam and Eve where they said, you know what, I would prefer to rely... on on the physical understanding that I will gain by eating fruit and by the words of this person that has stood next to me rather than believing in the God who created me. I have more hope in this than in God. Verses 8 to 10. I'm going to skip through. We're going to do the whole of this chapter quite quickly, so we're skipping through verses (coughs) Quite quickly here. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. (laughs) In other words, it's saying, you know what? You're living so... You're filling your life, you're living a life where you think you're happy. And actually you need to turn that around. And you need to be broken. Now here's the critical thing. What does it look like when we are broken before God? What does it look like when we are stripped of our reliance on this world because sometimes that happens in a moment doesn't it where we realize that we are stripped of our reliance on this world in this world we are totally humbled 12 months ago to the day i remember the japanese tsunami struck in a moment People's lives who survived, those who survived, their lives were changed. What they had previously relied on was stripped. It was gone. Do you know what? It can happen in a moment for all of us. When we are humbled, when we are broken, when we are stripped and we are on our face... What does it mean to be on our face before God? You know the great news is verse 10. He will lift you up. That's what it means. When you're shattered. When you've got no resource. When everything is gone. When you are no longer relying on yourself. When we are stripped of our own strength. God does not leave us in the dust. He does not leave us broken. He does not leave us shattered. When we are way down there, He lifts us up. That's great news. In fact, it is the only way really to know relationship with Him. We cannot fully, deeply, profoundly know relationship with God until we are stripped, until we are broken, until we are Till our fingers are prized away from all of the things that we rely on. But the great news is that the idea that God has is not to humble us and to leave us broken and shattered. But to lift us up. To raise us. Being broken before God is not a bad place. It's a great place. It's a place of hope. Because He lifts us and secures us and strengthens us. Humble yourselves before God and he will lift you up. Do you remember in The Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe, where Peter, who has rebelled against his family, uh, his two sisters, and his brother, and has sided with the White Witch, and, uh, and then it ends up in complete chaos as the White Witch turns on him. And when he comes back broken, To Aslam. When he comes back shattered and knowing he has no hope, when he stands there in front of Aslam with his head bowed, feeling as if he is completely just lost relationship, the relationship is restored. But it costs. It costs. It costs for Aslan to be broken on the stone table. It costs for Jesus to be broken on the tree. To be crushed and to be broken. For us, our heads to be lifted up doesn't mean that God just wipes away the problem and pretends that it didn't happen. It means that He deals with it fully fully. And completely. He lifts us up by bowing down himself. That is why James is able to say he lifts us up. Because this section is just riddled with the hope of the gospel. That we can come back to him even though we are adulterous people. Even though we are people who continually hold on to this world. Instead of holding on to God. We can come back to Him as messed up, broken people. And He will lift us up. Because He has been broken in our place. The damage has been dealt with. So is it God or the world? Is it God or the world? And if it is God doesn't that change the way we relate to each other? Doesn't that level all of us? Doesn't the cross bring us all down, broken, and then all raised up? Doesn't it level all of us? Doesn't it stop every one of us being able to say, look at him or look at her, they are less than me? You're less than me because you are X, Y, Z, and I'm not X, Y, Z. And then I come to the glory of the cross and measure myself against that and I realize that the difference is meaningless. We are all broken. We are all shattered so that we go on and it says in verse 11, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or a sister judges them. You judge them. (laughs) You're standing in the place of a judge as though you are raising yourself up To be above. And the previous previous verses say. But if you're humbled and broken. You'll realize exactly where you are. And remember that you are there. But remember that your head is lifted up. In other words you can't be both. (laughs) You can't live proud arrogance. Judging other people. And at the same time. Recognizing that you are humbled and broken before God. It just doesn't work. You can't be both. And yet we do, don't we? We do. Because that's our problem. We live lives where we judge, where we measure, where we consider the behavior of one or another and we consider it less behavior and unacceptable behavior or, or motives or attitudes or whatever it might be. And this is the message of James to the church. It's saying basically this. We've not got a grip on who we are. We've not realized what has happened as a result of the cross. So let's be joyful, broken people who no longer live judging each other, but rather wrap our arms around each other and say, let's soldier on together. Let's let's move forward together. Because although you might be what you are and we do, not con- we do not condone each other's sin, do we? We don't say, oh, it's okay. The cross breaks us all and remakes us all. It says that Jesus is broken. Look how profound it is. Look how significant it is. That the God who created us has to die. What a great level of that is. So it affects how we relate. And finally it affects how we plan. Listen. You who say today or tomorrow you will go to this or that city. Spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why you don't even know what tomorrow will bring. Or what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist That appears for a little while and then vanishes. We think ourselves so important, don't we? While we're here, we think that the world centers around us while we're here. And then we stop and we think there's 2,000 years since this was written. And I'm going to last seventy or eighty years. It's gone like that. It's over and done with. It's finished. You know, I, we were chatting, the, Rach and I, the other day. I'm really, I am just not good with videos or pictures from the past, and uh, I, it just it gets me quite emotional. And Rachel had just put some pictures on the window of, of the boys when they were young. and they, I mean really young, sort of 2, 3 and 4 sort of age. And you look back and you think, where's it gone? Where is it gone? It's past and finished and gone. We are like a mist, like a vapor, aren't we? And yet we live... With great strident plans. Oh yeah, I'm going to go to that city. I'm going to make some money there. I'm going to spend two years there. Maybe it might not quite express itself like that. What am I going to do next year? Well, I'm going to go for that qualification. And when I get that qualification, I'm going to move on and I'm going to do X, Y, Z. And after that qualification, then I'm going to get that kind of job. And we've got our whole life planned out. As though it's everything. And yet it's gone in seconds, relatively speaking. It's gone in seconds. And then we realize we can't even be sure about tomorrow, can we? We can't even be sure about tomorrow. We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. The world can change in a moment. And yet we live as if we are in control of it. And it can change in a moment. You know the reality is friends. We could not. It could be. That we don't even get home tonight. Without the world being profoundly shaken for us. Massively shaken. That's how it could work. That's what this verse is saying. And yet we live as if we've got it all mapped out. For the next 10 years so what's the answer to that the answer is verse 15 instead you ought to say if it's the Lord's will we'll, we will live and do this or that as it is you boast in your arrogant schemes the Lord's will I want to be knit into his plan for my life. I want to be shaped by his plan for my life, not my plan for my life. In fact, I want to be so confident because he knows what tomorrow brings. I want to have a sense of peace because he knows what tomorrow bring, brings. One of the problems with why we want to control tomorrow and next year and the year after is because it seems so uncertain. It seems so shaky, we don't know what's going to happen. We need to know there's some control. The great news is there is control. God's got it in control. God's got His hand on it. Therefore, I can say, what tomorrow brings is in His hands. You might be living, and this is where it's going to apply to every one of us here. If we are a believer in Jesus Christ, I will guarantee no matter where we are on our pathway, we are not living the kind of life of faith in Him and confidence in in Him that we could be living. So if we are really still stridently committed to our ways, we've got a long way to go. And if we are gradually, little by little, allowing our fingers to be stripped off our control of the future, we've still got a long way to go. And this this chapter is encouraging us to say, trust God for the future. Believe that He's got it in His hands. And if you are not believing in Jesus, if your faith and your hope is not in Him, then you know that you are living a life where the future is uncertain. You know that. And you know that you can't be sure what tomorrow is going to bring. That's why we put all of our plans into it. I want to ask you, wouldn't it be a great place? Wouldn't it be releasing? Wouldn't it be liberating? Wouldn't it be freeing? To reach a point where you know I can trust somebody for the future. I want to close by reading a verse of a song which a friend from Liverpool wrote. It says this My days are in his hands. Everyone by him is planned. So why should I fear when I know he is near and my days are in his hands? Days when your eyes fill with tears, days when your heart pounds with fear. Days when you sigh, when you want to die. All those days are in his hands. Days of joy and light, days of peace and might. Days when you're strong, days when your heart's filled with song. All those days are in his hands. Days which are now memory. Days to come With uncertainty, days good or bad, today to come or what we've had, all those days are in his hands. My Lord, my God, my King, my way, my everything, I commit to you my ways, all my moments. All my days, I'm so glad they're in your hands. I don't know about you, but I want to live like that. I want to live with that kind of confidence, knowing my days are in his hands. And I thank God that I can know it. Because Jesus has died so that my head might be lifted up when I am humbled before him.